The federal liberals made big noise during the 2015 election campaign about the Conservatives' penchant for omnibus bills to ram legislation through Parliament. Now it appears the Grits are taking a page out of the Tories' playbook. Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. The Liberals have staked a claim on the environment, turning the Ministry of Environment to the Ministry of Environment and Climate Change. And that minister, Ottawa Centre MP Catherine McKenna, is now shepherding in Bill C-69, the Impact Assessment Act, and the Canadian Energy Regulator Act, and amend the Navigation Protection Act. It would replace the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act of 2012, which was brought in by the Conservatives. At the time, many felt the government of the day was turning its back on the environment and science in favour of economics. Flash forward to February of this year, and the Liberals introduced Bill C-69. It's been contentious at committee, with one member resigning in protest of the Liberals' heavy-handed tactics. The Liberals promised to make the legislation more robust and transparent, yet it's looking pretty opaque. The resource sector, mining and oil, feel the legislation goes too far and suggests it'll put the squeeze on any new projects. And to get some perspective on the issue, I am pleased to be joined by Conservative MP Ed Fast, the party's environment critic and MP for Abbotsford. Thanks for joining us, Ed. Hey, good to be on your show. From your perspective, how does C-69 improve public consultation when it comes to these projects? Well, I'm not sure I would use the word improve consultation. Uh, What this legislation does, it introduces more uncertainty into the regulatory process, more uncertainty for those who want to invest in Canada's resource sector, more uncertainty for those who want to build pipelines in Canada, So we believe this is a big step backwards. And don't get me wrong, I do believe that Canadians across our country expect two things from their government. One is that the government ensures there is a warm, welcoming environment for investors in Canada so that we can grow our economy and maximize the value of our resources. I also believe Canadians want to have strong environmental standards. And it's finding that appropriate balance that is always the challenge. So back in 2012, you mentioned the changes that our former conservative government made. Those changes were intended to update the legislation, streamline it to make sure that applicants uh, for resource projects had a very clear process to move forward on, and that at the end of the day, critical projects of a national interest would be built. Unfortunately, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, when he was running for election in 2015, said, I'm going to undo everything the Conservatives did, including the environmental legislation that they introduced. And that's what Bill C-69 really is. It's taking um, a process that isn't perfect but was vastly improved under our former government and now taking it a huge step backwards with more opaqueness. You used the word opaqueness in your introduction. Absolutely there's more uncertainty, uh, more chances of delays, and much greater discretion for the environment minister to uh, basically veto a project. Now, in, in terms of that, we'll talk about, about that. Are you you feel that the minister shouldn't have that uh, veto or, or that position? Well, you know, the, the minister has that power um, throughout this legislation, and it comes up time and time again. The minister also has another power, and that is to extend or suspend timelines without limit. And that's a concern because the minister came in and said, listen, this legislation is going to make the the environmental review process shorter, more predictable, 
But in fact, what they did is they introduced a whole new phase right at the beginning called the, the planning phase, which is 180 days long, which is added to the environmental review process. Now, having a planning phase is not a bad thing, and I've spoken to people in the industry, and they're saying, you know what, that's not a bad thing to have because at least in the planning process, we're working with government, we're moving this forward, and we may get some indication of whether the government really is opposed to this project. We may not spend all this money going through an expensive environmental review process. Uh, we may just cancel our efforts before we ever get that far because the signals coming out of government are negative. So that planning phase is fine. It's just that it has extended the total timeline for getting a project approved. And then you add to that the minister's right to extend or suspend at her own discretion without limit. Just adds that much more um, uncertainty to the process. You know, uh, when we look at uh, the, the legislation C-69 and, and the previous one in, in 2012, from what I recall in 2012, when elected factors uh, of people for public consultation, it was people who were directly involved. This one takes a lot more factors. Now, is that where you think the slowdown is, or do you not think this would be provide more transparency? At least you'd hear more from the public. Well, you're absolutely right. The, the, one of the biggest challenges is that the standing test has been changed. The standing test being... What is the standard that the Environmental Review Board applies to those who want to uh, be interveners in the process? In other words, how do we identify the people that have a real interest and whose interests are affected by this project to make sure that we hear them? And how do we ensure that people that have just passing interest don't clog up the process and delay it unnecessarily because, you know, a, a lot of these resource projects um, may never get started if, in fact, there's a real prospect that um, special interest groups can slow them down, slow the process down, delay it by adding more and more and more interveners to the mix. So the standing test has been widened, which means that there's virtually a guarantee that the process will drag on and on and on because everybody is getting their entitlement to say something, even if they don't have a direct interest in that project. Well, if they're Canadian, would you not say that's a direct interest? You know what? If they're Canadian, yes, but standing test has been expanded beyond that. What if you had a foreign uh, special interest group that says, you mm -hmm. know what, we don't like the fact that Canada is mining or that it's developing its own natural gas resources and and we think we're going to go there and we're going to try to drag this thing out and delay it to the point where the proponent finally ab abandons the project. That is what we can't afford to have in Canada because a significant part of our economy depends on our resource sector. Ed Fast is joining us on the Unpublished Cafe. He is the Conservative Environment Critic and MP for Abbotsford as we talk about C-69. Now, in terms of Indigenous consultation, was there enough here? I believe there was enough. In fact, we are supportive of enshrining the duty to consult in this legislation. And we said as much at the committee uh, when the issue was discussed. Um, there's also a very clear uh, directive that uh, indigenous, indigenous knowledge, in other words, traditional knowledge mm -hmm. 
of our First Nations will be incorporated into the review process. So that has been formalized. What hasn't been clarified is whether that traditional knowledge has the same weight as science, because historically uh, these kinds of applications and these kinds of projects have been evaluated based on the science that is brought forward. Can we build this project in a way that is still environmentally defensible and then will protect our environment? Um, and that should be done based on science. And mm-hmm. now that we're introducing indigenous knowledge, uh, I think there has to be great care taken to ensure that um, indigenous knowledge is uh, specific to the issues that our First Nations address throughout the hearing process, um, because science still has to be the basis upon which we make these decisions. Now, you had uh, mentioned uh, at committee, the discussions at committee, and it seemed that uh, a lot of the amendments were being stonewalled by the government. Well, that's, that's the irony. Um, the, the Liberals on the committee brought forward a host of their own amendments, acknowledging that the legislation was deeply, deeply flawed. What was really disappointing was to see the Liberals voting in favor of every one of their amendments. And then when the NDP, or we as Conservatives, brought forward quite a number of our amendments, invariably the Liberals would vote them down. So it was quite clear that they had received marching instructions from the Minister and from the Prime Minister um, not to in any way allow the legislation to be improved through amendments coming from the opposition parties. The only ones they would accept would be liberal ones. That's very disappointing, especially in light of the fact that right at the beginning of the Bill C-69 review process, uh, the liberals at the committee brought forward and had passed what's uh, called a programming motion, which severely limited the amount of time that was set aside to hear witnesses on the bill and to debate amendments to the bill. And there were many, many witnesses, probably hundreds, Mm -hmm. that would have liked to have appeared to address problems with the bill that were never heard. They were told, listen, you send us written um, submissions, but we're not going to allow you to appear before committee where members of the committee can ask you questions and sort of drill down and see whether the the amendments you're proposing uh, will uh, improve the legislation. So it was a very disappointing process. Mm -hmm. They cut the process short, and then at the end of the day, wouldn't even allow a full debate on the amendments that were brought forward. If C-69 moves forward in its current form, what's your vision for the Canadian energy industry? Oh, uh, I believe the Canadian energy has been dealt a very heavy blow. We have seen, what, somewhere in the order of $100 billion worth of investment leave Canada. Uh, That is dramatic. We haven't seen this kind of investment flight for many, many decades, and it is symptomatic of a country that is no longer seen as being a favorable, welcoming investment destination. And that's coming from international investors. They will tell you that Canada is no longer a great place to invest. Ed, I want to thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. I would be glad to do it again.
Ed Fast is the MP for Abbotsford and federal conservative critic. We did invite Catherine McKenna onto the podcast, but her office said she wasn't available. They did offer to send written answers to questions, but we turned them down because, well, that offers no venue for follow-up and doesn't really make for engaging content. Not everyone's dead set against the legislation. Patrick DeRoshi is the program manager of climate and energy with environmental defense, and he joins us now. And Patrick, you don't outright pan the bill. From your perspective, does it improve on the Tories' CEAA? Yeah, I mean, the legislation is, is far from perfect, but it's uh, significant improvements over the changes that were made to environmental laws in 2012 that we saw deeply undermine public trust in government decision-making uh, for energy and industrial projects. This was a clear attempt, I think, to take into account both environmental protection and economic development. And in some ways, it falls short, but I think there's a real opportunity here to restore public trust and credibility in the energy project review process and in the environmental laws that uh, govern how we um, move forward with projects in Canada. Now, under the uh, legislation, a single environmental impact assessment uh, will be part of this uh, this uh, legislation. Does this make it more streamlined for government or for industry? Well, I think that what it does actually is strikes a fine balance between between both those things. What we saw happening with the previous laws that govern these processes was that there was too much um, restrictions on public participation here. So when we saw for example, pipeline reviews, which became very controversial, moved to the NEB instead of being led by the Environmental Assessment Agency. That had the effect of actually slowing down the permission for projects to proceed because it caused so much controversy. Um, These pipeline reviews became a forum for high-level policy debates about climate change, about indigenous rights, about how we should be moving together as a country with a low-carbon economy. And those are not the forum for those policy debates. So what this legislation starts to do is bring those policy base to uh, the higher level and allows the new regulators and the new review bodies to do their job considering what direction the country wants to take. You know, when we look at uh, the regulators and previously when we look at the NEB, it used to, it could have members of the actual industry be monitoring in the first place. That is not going to be the case with the new IA, is it? Yeah, that's one of the things we're really happy about with what the government did with the NEB and replacing with, it, with this new Canadian energy regulator is that it removed the standing test that uh, barred the public from participating reviews. Anyone interested who in, in a pipeline review can now uh, get involved. Um, once this legislation comes into effect, previous NED board members will be replaced by new board members. And even though this can still be joint review panels between the new impact assessment agency and the new energy regulator, um, what happens is that there, there won't be allowed to be a majority of, of new energy regulator commissioners on that joint review panel. So it's being led by a new independent impact assessment agency that has the expertise to do it, and it can no longer be you know, hijacked by oil and gas industry interests like we saw happen uh, over the last 10 years before this. Can it be hijacked politically? Um, no. I, I mean, I think the government's made a real good attempt here to make this an independent process. It does give the minister some discretion throughout the process on how to move forward with reviews and whether or not to approve the project. But in the end, these are political decisions, and we they have taken great steps here to ensure that this process is based on sound science, includes all um, interests of the public, 
and considers uh, the country's climate impacts and whether a project is aligned with Canada's uh, environmental obligations and climate commitments. Patrick Hiroshi is joining us on the Unpublished Cafe. He's Program Manager of Climate and Energy with Environmental Defense as we talk about Bill C-69. And uh, in your review of this, you, you feel sustainability is an improvement over the previous legislation. How so? Yeah, we're, we're, well, first of all, we're glad to see that sustainability was actually included in the language of this bill because it was not in, in C-A-2012. And one of, the, one of the things this bill does is expands the scope of factors that need to be considered by a, the assessment body to include things like social, economic, and health indicators, to include um, impact on Indigenous rights and languages, to include impact um, on Indigenous traditional knowledge, to consider a project's ability to hinder or contribute to Canada's climate commitments. So we're seeing this, this new array of factors that um, the government has to consider when looking at a project that goes beyond just whether it um, benefits the community, community economically or whether it's, well, has, there's an economic need demonstrated for the project by the proponents. And that's a really good step forward in the right direction because uh, communities often felt like their voices were being ignored um, with stuff like pipelines, with mine developments, and that has the, the effect of actually slowing down the approval of, of projects. And I think by including people, including indigenous people, including communities, including environmentalists in the process right from the start, it actually has the um, result of restoring trust and improving the credibility of the process uh, to make it shorter in the long run. That seemed to be part of the issue with CEAA is, uh, you know, there didn't seem to be a lot of transparency. Yeah, I mean, what was really concerning about CEA 2012 is that access to information requests uh, that came out later in the public showed that some of those recommendations that overhauled CEA, that changed the Navajo Waters Protection Act, that changed some of the regulation around the NAB and, uh, and pipeline licensing, were actually written by the oil and gas industry and used by the government to put into a new law. It was basically a wish list from the Canadian Energy Pipeline Association made into environmental laws. So this really had the effect of, of undermining public trust in the process. And without public trust in the process, you're going to end up with the controversy that you saw over the last 10 years with pipeline projects in this country. So I really think that this bill goes a long way to getting back the credibility of these review processes. They were lost um, when, the, when the government previously uh, rammed through CA 2012. Do you, do you think now with, uh, with C69 that we won't be seeing so much of the protests uh, regarding these kind of projects? Um, I do think it goes a long way to getting those groups that were opposed to the change in CA 2012 on board. That group includes, you know, environmental defense, the group I work for included. We were one of the foremost organizations that were fighting, fighting pipelines. And here we are saying that this is a good process that takes into concern the, um, the issues raised by industry, raised by environmentalists, raised by First Nations. This is two years in the making through consultations across the country. And I think the government's taking great pains to try to consider all sides and restore some credibility to this process. But you don't think there's much in the way of improved protection for waterways? Um, Well, there is some premise that need to be made on the Canada Navigable Waters Protection Act. So what was lost in 2012 was basically protections for 97% of Canada's waterways. What they've replaced that with is a new process to get waterways 
moves back onto that environmental protection. So we haven't gained all of the water protections that we had in 2012, and that's something that we'll be looking for the Senate to improve on. Patrick, I want to thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Patrick DeRoshi is the Program Manager, Climate and Energy with Environmental Defense. When the Conservatives brought in CEAA in 2012, many lamented the lack of oversight and protection for our rivers and lakes. Now, under the Navigation Protection Act, just 64 rivers, 97 lakes, and three oceans are protected from development that restricts their navigability in Canada. That's maybe just 1% of our resource. To focus on this a bit, I'm pleased to be joined by Lindsay Telfer, the Project Director with the Canadian Freshwater Alliance. Thank you for joining us, Lindsay. Thank you for having me. From your perspective, how does C-69 go further than CEAA of 2012, or does it? Yes, it certainly it certainly does, and I would say in one significant way. It expands protections of Canada's navigable waters um, from the impacts of any major project that happens. So um, previous, um, previous to C-69, uh, protections were limited to that schedule, which you introduced in the uh, introduction there. Uh, and C-69 expands that protection for major projects. Now, we don't know what major projects are yet and how they'll be defined under the Act, um, but it will expand um, the protection of navigable waters for any major project that happens on any navigable water across the country. But it doesn't really do much in terms of minor projects, right? No, it does not significantly change minor um, projects. And it added a new class of works, which I've been dubbing medium works, Mm -hmm. (laughs) those projects which are not major or minor. Um, and, uh, and, and we're yet to, we'll, we'll, we're yet to see exactly how um, they're going to fit into the equation. Wait, when you say, uh, medium, can you give us an example of what you're, what you're looking at or thinking about? Um, again, we don't, we won't know until we see how major projects are defined. Mm. Um, we know that minor projects currently are defined as docks, um, as some, some small weirs, um, some dredging projects, uh, so we know what those pro- how those projects are defined. Um, how we'll see how major projects are defined. You know, large bridges would be an example. Dams, you would assume, <laughs> would yeah. be an example of major projects. But dams is a big question mark. And so, d- if they um, define dams by megawatt production, we could see some of those smaller run of the river dams, which do block navigation. Um, dubbed as uh, and fall into that medium class of work. You know, it, it seems part of the problem here is the, the definition of navigation in general. You would think pretty well any body of water is navigable. Yes, and that was that points to another change that that C sixty nine has or will bring into effect, and that is a more specific definition of navigability. Um, before uh, the changes made to the Canadian Navigable Waters um, Protection Act, and um, you know prior to two thousand and twelve, uh, navigation was defined as what we called the float test. If you could float a canoe down the <laughs> down the waterway, it was navigable. Uh, in 2012, that definition was narrowed quite significantly to commercial navigability. And what we're seeing in, in C-69 is a broadened um, definition of navigation, which would include recreational navigation. 
uh, and goes much closer towards that uh, flow to canoe test, though it certainly falls short of that broad, broad definition. Yeah, I was going to say so. Commercial uh, commercial navigability is is key. That there seems that you know the majority of people are being left out. You know, when you talk about the recreational and and just the uh, the small folks who aren't obviously in it for commercial. Yeah, I mean, definitely the, the well, the new the new definition will certainly include recreational navigability, and and so again, it will only apply to major projects. Uh, again, the vast majority of waterways um, across the country still fall out of that schedule. That you know that list of of hundred waterways that um, that won't be protected for medium and um, and minor works. Did the government come up with a, uh, a schedule or a test as to which of those rivers and lakes would be protected? Uh, again, I think that's one of those we need to wait and see. Uh, once C-69 works its way through the Senate and um, and gains royal assent, we, we will see regulatory changes. We will see the definition of those major projects. Uh, we expect to see a review of what's defined as, mi- as minor projects. And we, and we hope to see a review of the schedule of waters. Um, it's not entirely clear the criteria that was used to establish the schedule um, as it currently exists. And uh, we think we need to revisit that and broaden that schedule exponentially to ensure that um, that, that important waterways for navigation, whether it be commercial or recreation, uh, are, or, and I would argue for uh, historical Indigenous purposes, are, are covered under that schedule. Lindsay Telfer joining us on the Unpublished Cafe. She's project director with the Canadian Freshwater Alliance as we talk about C-69. And you brought up uh, Indigenous uh, consultation and rights. Was there enough recognition of that? There was certainly an attempt to integrate the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, uh, you know, and and I, I think it's one of those challenges where is it talk and no action? We, ne- we need to start to see uh, that reference and, and that talk manifest into action and, and the upholding of the rights of our Indigenous populations across the country. You know, uh, it's it's had its third reading. It's uh, on its way through the Senate. Is you know, is it a fait accompli, or are you concerned that that's it? Uh, you know, I, I, I we'll, we'll see. The Senate certainly has a role to play in the review of the of the Act, and there are certainly opportunities that we could strengthen the Act for the protection of our our lakes and rivers and and vital waterways in the country. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see how it, how it progresses. It, the, the third part on navigable waters did not receive a lot of attention in the House of Commons committee. And, um, and, and we'll look to see how, how that proceeds through the Senate and, and through Royal Assent. Lindsay, I want to thank you for joining us. No problem. Thank you for having me. Lindsay Telfer is the project director with the Canadian Freshwater Alliance. There have been a number of voices calling for some changes to the legislation bill C-69, despite the fact it's passed third reading. Now it's in the Senate. To get some legal perspective on the legislation, I'm pleased to be joined by Josh Ginsburg of EcoJustice. And Josh, in terms of the legislation, will it take the economic and political influence out? I think Bill C-69 does go a long way to addressing what uh, has been a central problem with EAs, environmental assessments in the past which is that they are um, 
decisions that are that are entirely political in nature. Um, this bill changes that a little bit by focusing on the actual report that goes to cabinet or the minister for decision making and requires the cabinet or the minister to base the, their decision on the report itself, as well as a list of five other criteria. So it makes it clear what exactly is this decision being uh, based on, and it opens up the black box a little bit of cabinet secrecy uh, to make it uh, clearer that the decision is based on the report of the professionals by the new independent uh, impact assessment agency. Um, but it still does leave room uh, for uh, other considerations to sort of seep in there. Uh, there's there's a set of criteria, of course, that have to be that have to go into a report, but there's not a strict test, a strict legal test that governs the actual approval of the project. So there's still some gray area, but it's tightened up uh, a little bit here, and that that should be an improvement. Does replacing the National Energy Board with the impact assessment improve transparency? Uh, absolutely. So the National Energy Board ha- has never. Uh, been an environmental assessment agency. That's not, that's not historically been its purpose. In 2012, it was given that responsibility uh, by the uh, then government uh, to handle environmental assessments of energy transmission uh, uh, projects. Um, that caused ripple effects that uh, uh, came to the, the whole country's attention uh, uh, very vividly in the Energy East uh, debacle, uh, where you, you had a panel that was uh, taking inappropriate meetings, um, giving the appearance of being unduly influenced um, by uh, the, the, the company that was actually proposing the project. Um, you didn't have an independent panel of experts uh, making the decision. Now, the National Energy Board is composed of experts, but they're experts in regulating projects that have already been approved, not in considering environmental uh, issues prior to approval. So the fact that the National Energy Board is now going to be reformed and uh, involved but not leading the environmental assessment or the impact assessment is is a big improvement. Josh Ginsburg of EcoJustice is joining us on the Unpublished Cafe as we discuss Bill C-69, which is uh, currently in the Senate. More factors to the assessment were, were added with this new legislation. Does that further engage people? Absolutely. So there's a, there's a long list of uh, factors now. Uh, they include uh, broad issues such as uh, impacts on, uh, on health, uh, impacts on on uh, the, uh, on communities um, and there's no longer a standing test for people to actually make their voices heard uh, in the past there was a especially for for NEB assessments that we were just discussing mm-hmm. there was a gatekeeper function um, where uh, only those who the NEB uh, found to be directly affected uh, were were let in uh, now, uh, community participation will be much uh, easier, which is appropriate for projects that are going to have really wide-ranging uh, impacts, such as pipelines. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the issues, is, in particular, when you look at the Navigation Protection Act, is, is the lack of definition regarding major projects. Is that one of the loopholes you'd like to see cleared or uh, cleaned up? 
Yeah, the, the, the Navigation Protection Act part of this bill was a little bit disappointing. Um, in truth, we didn't we we have we did not see a restoration of environmental considerations at all when it comes to navigable waterways. Uh, in, in the past, uh, a possible obstruction to a navigable waterway would trigger an environmental assessment. That's no longer the case. Um, there may be some uh, requirements, uh, some regulatory requirements for projects of a certain size, as you, as you refer to major projects, and that is something that's going to have to be developed uh, uh, through regulation. Um, but uh, overall, the, uh, the, the navigation protection part of this bill is, I think, the least ambitious. You see some uh, loopholes in some of the legislation. Maybe we can talk about a few of those. Let's see. Uh, well, one thing that comes to, to mind, one, one major loophole, if you want to characterize it that way, is the fact that the, the actual impact assessment legislation doesn't set out what's actually subject to impact assessment. So just to read the legislation, uh, if you are either the pro- proponent or a pro- of a project or someone that might be subject to the effects, the environmental effects of that project, you don't know if that project's going to be assessed. Uh, mm. by the federal mm. government. That, that comes in a regulation uh, called the project list that is being developed now. And without that, we really don't know what the impact of the impact assessment legislation will be. Um, so if this government uh, or a future government were to be uh, uh, unambitious uh, in uh, what they consider uh, to be appropriate coverage, then the legislation is a paper tiger. Um, so that so this this regulatory phase is really key. Um, the legislation sets up the potential for a good process, but it's all about implementation at this point. So if it's well implemented, it's an improvement. If not, then uh, we're back to square mm, one. Right. All right. Well, uh, Josh, I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. All the best. Josh Ginsberg of EcoJustice. I want to thank our guest today on the Unpublished Cafe. Ed Fast is the conservative environment critic and MP for Abbotsford. Patrick DeRoshi is with Environmental Defense. Lindsay Telfer was with the Canadian Freshwater Alliance. And Josh Ginsberg is a lawyer with EcoJustice. Now, here's our question for you. If you were an MP in Canada, would you vote for this bill, C-69? Yes or no? You can go to unpublished.vote to make your voice heard. Thanks for listening to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand.